Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of the Quiet Mark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, and Quiet Mark is the independent international approval award program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. It encourages companies worldwide to prioritise noise reduction in the design of everyday machines, appliances and acoustic building products to find solutions to noise problems and benefit health and well-being. To those of you returning to the podcast, welcome back and thank you for joining us again. And to anyone listening to the show for the first time, I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, I encourage you to check out past episodes which explore such themes as acoustics in education and biophilic acoustics, showing that when a place sounds right, it feels right. Many of you no doubt will be familiar with Kate Bush's critically acclaimed 2011 album, 50 Words for Snow. And that album title is based on the theory that Inuit people are able to describe snow in 50 different ways. But is that really true? Well, I looked it up online, and Laura Kelly, a literature MA graduate and content writer on Readable, explains that this story can be traced back to anthropologist Franz Boas, who studied life of local Inuit people on Baffin Island in Canada in the late 1800s as part of his postgraduate geographical studies. Franz would send letters home describing the local Inuit ways of life, and he often boasted about how much seal meat he was eating. And within his letters, he wrote of the many terms that local people had for snow, and this became named by sceptics as the Great Eskimo Vocabulary Hoax. However, recent studies have shown that Boas was actually correct. So where in English we might have a sentence describing snow, fusional languages such as the Eskimo Alouet family have long, complex words. Examples of such Eskimo snow lexemes include, and I'm probably going to get the pronunciations wrong, Muraneg, which describes soft, deep snow, or Kanevluk, which is fine snow. Anyway, you must be wondering why I'm sharing this trivia in the introduction to episode 5 of the Quiet Mark podcast. Well, the 50 words for snow story nicely demonstrates that where there is a need, there is a word. The Inuit people of Baffin Island are surrounded by snow. It's a big part of their daily lives, and describing it in many ways in a single word is an absolute necessity. And this poses a question, how adept are we when it comes to describing sound? In episode 4, which focused on acoustics in education, we heard Shane Cryer from Echophon explain that when people walk into a classroom that his company has treated acoustically, they don't really say, oh, this sounds good. They're more likely to say, oh... This feels right. And as previous guests, biophilic designer Oliver Heath in episode 3 and Ethan Bordeaux from the World Building Institute in episode 2 have all said, when a place feels right through well-designed acoustics, absenteeism decreases, performance and productivity increases, results and grades improve, and overall well-being is optimised. So when we approach describing how we want our buildings to sound or how we want them to make us feel, the correct use of language is highly important. And that's where today's guest comes in. Adrian Passmore is an acoustician and associate director with Arup. He demystifies the language of sound and acoustics and tells of the latest advancements in technology and virtual reality which enable stakeholders to experience what a future building project both looks and sounds like before the building work even begins. Adrian was one of the masterclass speakers at QuietMark's Acoustics Academy launch last February, a video of which can be seen on our YouTube channel QuietMark TV. The recording you're about to hear was made immediately as we stepped off stage at that February event, and I would like to say a quick thank you to our Quiet Mark awarded partners, Allsfar, who kindly provided some beautiful biophilic acoustic murals, which provided excellent, much-needed soundproofing and dampening at the Business Design Centre, and they also provided very comfortable acoustic furniture, which is perfect for podcast recording, and available through the Acoustics Academy platform of verified acoustic products for every building project at quietmark.com. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, architects, consultants and technical specialists working across every aspect of today's built environment. 
Headquartered in London, they currently employ over 15,000 people globally, working on projects in over 140 countries. Arup was born of their dynamic founder, Sir Ove Arup's conviction that a more collaborative and open-minded approach to engineering would lead to work of greater quality and enduring relevance. His legacy is an organisation that continues to be recognised for bravely imaginative solutions to the world's most challenging projects. So on to Adrian. For more than 20 years, Adrian has been delivering holistic acoustic building designs. After graduating from the Salford University Electroacoustics degree in 1992, Adrian was employed by an underwater acoustics research company for five years, working primarily for military and petrochemical industries. In 1997, he began a career in commercial acoustics consultancy, working for Sound Research Laboratories Limited in London, where he gained wide experience in building acoustics before joining Spectrum Acoustics Limited to assist in setting up their London office. He joined Arup Acoustics in 2002 and currently leads their UK IMEA property business interests with principal focus on developments containing residential, commercial, hotels and leisure buildings. Adrian also leads the Acoustics 28 staff London team and he has led the acoustic design of nationally significant infrastructure projects and major developments such as HS2 London Euston and Birmingham stations, BBC Television Centre London, Paradise Circus Redevelopment Birmingham, Earl's Court Development London and Chelsea Barracks London. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Well, hello, Simon, and thank you very much for having me. So it says you've led the acoustic design on some amazing projects there. Tell me, why does someone go to an acoustic designer? Arguably, there's probably two fundamental reasons why um, somebody might give me a ring on my phone. The first one is um, when they've got a problem. So, so un- unfortunately, these situations do arise. And so somebody will give an acoustic consultant ring and just to let them know that there's something that they don't like about the place they inhabit, the world they live in. And um, from their perspective, they think it is a, a noise problem. is isn't always a noise problem, but sometimes it can be. And they're asking for us to help them, really. On the slightly more positive approaches that we do get, it's really so that we can help people realise the built environment that they want to live in so that they can be very fruitful, they can have enjoyable lives and they can be happy with things. And so there's two different edges to it in there. There are many other avenues, but those are the most common ones that come along. And I read out there that you run a 28-strong acoustics team within Arup. Tell me more about what Arup does as a surface and 28 people, is that bigger than the average team for acoustics? For a single office location, I would have thought it's one of the larger offices that it's out there. I mean, as, as a national practice, we're actually 85. And so we're spread across sort of five main hubs. And so, yeah, it, it's quite a significant business in that respect. But it's not just acoustics, it's also involving venues design as well. So we have a very broad view on things. We had recently a couple of editions of specialists in terms of health impact assessments and, and analysis and things like that. So that's really tapping into to psychoacoustics. So across those 85 people, we have so many specialisations within the specialisation of acoustics. I loved your presentation at our Acoustics Academy launch uh, today, February the 13th, as we record. And you spoke about how a building makes us feel, the experience that a building gives us. But you stressed the need to move away from crazy scientists and the old world order of this obsession with decibels and approach sound differently. Rather than me paraphrase your presentation, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you covered in your excellent presentation today. Yeah, of course, I'd be more than happy to. Often, specialist designers, and by that I'm including acousticians or acoustic consultants, are often considered to be sort of quite crazy scientific people who um, wave their hands around rather a lot and and they spout lots and lots of impenetrable details and they uh, mystify the whole discussion and, and language around sound and noise and vibration. And they do that by relying very heavily on extremely detailed 
descriptions of, of how we actually go around measuring um, these particular aspects of our lives and that's in terms of you know it's decibels and it's all that sort of thing the the inherent difficulty with that is, is that it is rather abstract um, and it's quite meaningless mm. uh, so when a person is living in a space, they they don't think about decibels. They think about the you know the quality of life that they have and the sounds that they're experiencing, whether or not they're enjoying them, whether they are encouraging them to behave in a certain way, how they feel about things, and it's the activities that enables. And so that's really where the concept of the soundscape comes about. And soundscapes in itself, it isn't that new. Um, there's been you know quite a lot of talk around it probably in the last ten or fifteen years, but that's more. Uh, it's happened more often in the in the external environment, there's environmental noise levels and considerations about some of the large infrastructure projects, whether or not it's expansions of airports, whether or not it's talking about new modern high-speed rail. But now what we're seeing is that those concepts and those thoughts and that language and the way of discussing this very rich way is now being applied to the internal spaces. So that's in a nutshell what internal soundscapes are all about, is what they're trying to do. They're trying to talk about things in a meaningful way, which has resonance with the stakeholders and the building users. Other guests I'm speaking to often give sort of practical examples, case studies of a client that came to them seeking a solution and where a solution was provided. Do you have such case studies you might better share with our listeners? There are a whole multitude of them. And this really does come back to some of the modern techniques and technologies we use. And that's not to actually mystify and make things even more complicated. It's more to do with just unlocking that whole discussion. And when I'm talking about those technologies, I'm talking about oralizations. And oralizations, it's quite a grand term, but it's talking about taking an individual into a, a space which has been cleverly designed and specifically designed and letting them listen to soundscapes so they can form their own opinions. And all of these are artificially created, but the long and the short of it is the design that goes behind it, that's what you're presenting to the stakeholders and the users so they can form their own opinions. And the decibels really don't matter. Once they've decided whether or not they like something, well, that's fantastic. That means then you have agreement in terms of what a successful building is going to look like from their perspective. On the flip side, if they don't like it, then of course you can respond to that and you can take the necessary steps by virtue of the design to give something which is more suitable and more appropriate to what their specific needs are. How hard is it to describe sound when it comes to what they want it to sound and feel like? How adept are clients at being able to describe that? They're getting better. I think at this point in time, it's very difficult because we tend to describe the sounds and how we experience them in very simplistic ways. They tend to be almost quite binary. If you ask anyone, what does this sound like? Then generally, most people either say it is loud or it is quiet. And it's no more detailed than that. But the difficulty is that that doesn't really capture what the responses of, of the individual are to a sound. Because sounds just aren't simply loud or quiet or bright or, or a bit dull. They actually, you know, they can produce biophysiological responses to it. And by that, what I mean is there are various parts of your brain which will start lighting up when you hear certain sounds, and they'll start making you feel in a very, very complex way. And so I think people are starting to understand that a little bit better. There's still a long way to go. But the lexicon behind soundscaping is really, it's in its early days. But I think it's giving us the tools so we can do this in an articulate way. Could you give me a moment, perhaps, where you, you fulfilled a brief and then you saw it in actuality, in the real world? Something that you went to it and thought, yeah, the soundscaping in this space is ideal. And everyone who went into that space sort of nodded their heads and said, yes, this is exactly what we're hoping for. 
a very recent project that springs to mind would be the excellent outcomes that we achieved down at the Sky Campus in, in West London, where across that there are a wide variety of buildings. They have many different types in terms of their structure, in terms of what they're intended to do. And that whole story about very early stakeholder engagement played a essential and pivotal role in that process where the stakeholders and the clients and the other designers, they were given the opportunity to experience the actual planned and intended soundscapes in these very large multi-activity open plan working areas and so they can make very informed decisions in terms of how they wanted it to, to look, how they wanted it to feel and so that was really interesting because it created an environment where as opposed to being overly dead to the extent that it became rather claustrophobic we were able to realise and create a space which has a very nice animated and exciting ambience to it. It sort of, it finds that very sweet spot between a place being very harsh and disruptive and it being so claustrophobic that nobody actually feels comfortable to interact and collaborate with all their colleagues. And what of the future, Adrian? What are your hopes for the future? You talked about breaking down the, the walls of old. Well, I think the immediate activities that I, I'd like to be seeing is far more focus in obtaining the evidence base to support some of these fairly fundamental decisions that we make as designers. Quite often we're presented with, with quite extreme scenarios where we know that if we allow the soundscape to head in a certain direction and to go above certain noise levels in a very simplistic fashion, that it's going to be unacceptable and people really aren't going to enjoy it. And we know that if we actually take those parameters, the, the, the magnitudes of them down by you know a fairly significant amount, we know that that's a really good space to be in. The difficulty is that once you're actually in the border, which is sort of between these two upper and lower bands, in terms of exactly how people respond, that's still a bit of an unknown. We are starting to understand how soundscapes make us feel physically, but there's a far more nuanced discussion which is required on that, and fundamentally it needs to be underpinned by research. And that's going to be the main issue that we have to unlock to really create these very beautiful spaces that we aspire to create. You've been an acoustic designer for how many years now? Oh, it's probably about 22 or 23 years, I think, approximately. How would you find yourself on that path? What leads there? Oh, well, that was um, that's a, a very potted history was um, when I was probably about 17, 16 or 17 years ago, I'd already started doing my A-levels. And they were quite arts-based, and I was doing English literature and geography and something else as well. And I started to, to, to teach myself how to play guitar. And I was starting to think about, well, what sort of career path can I see myself um, sort of following? And I know at that age, it's, it's quite difficult. And I also had an interest in, in hi-fi uh, from a sort of very audiophile perspective, albeit I didn't have anywhere near the funds to buy the really expensive equipment I would have dearly loved to. So, so. Because I had that interest in, in music in terms of listening to it, but also playing it as well, um, I did a bit of research and found out there were a couple of universities, there were only two at that time in the UK, who did this course in acoustics. Um, and so I, I went up to um, the University of Salford and did a degree in electroacoustics, um, which provided me with that very solid um, education background in terms of the physics behind the sound, but then also the application of it to the engineering world. And so, so really that, that led very naturally into becoming an acoustic consultant. And um, I've never looked back. Still playing the guitar though, I hope. 
No, not playing the guitar, actually. Or I, I never actually became very proficient at it. Um, no, what what I do now is I'm teaching myself the piano instead. Um, and, and the reason for that is my, my eldest child, and this is going back about five or six years ago, um, seems to have a real interest in, in playing piano. So um, being the um, the considerate parents um, that we are, we, we duly went off and, and bought her a little upright piano so she could continue with doing this. And, and the day after it, um, it was delivered, um, she decided she didn't want to do piano anymore. And so rather than leaving it there just gathering <laughs> dust and cobwebs, I thought, well, here's an opportunity for me to try and exercise another part of my mind. We have a piano in my house. My eldest daughter is a pianist and it's in the hallway. Uh, which means that the sound goes all the way through the house. And uh, when the piano tuner came over to tune the piano for the first time, he said, best place for the piano in the hallway, the heart of the home, you've got it all expands from here. And uh, certainly I recall when she, you know, when she was living at home, she's at uni now, but when she used to play in the house, I could be in my room upstairs or in the kitchen in different spaces and hear that. And it's just a a lovely thing. So I'm glad the piano is not only gathering dust; it's still ringing yeah. in your home. Well, that's that, that's really interesting. That both of us sitting here now, we've never met each other before, and yet we're able to offer up um, very personal, anecdotal stories, which really just highlight that sound permeates through all of our lives, and that's why it's so vitally important um, that that we uh, consider it more and make sure that we're building the right sort of environment so we can continue to have all of these anecdotes for years to come. I felt very at home chatting with you today. Um, thank you again for speaking uh, not only on our podcast, but at the Acoustics Academy launch. I look forward to speaking to you more in the future. Thanks very much, Aidan. It was my pleasure entirely. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. The lovely Adrian Passmore there, recorded back in February before lockdown, at a time where most of us were unaware of just how much the world and our lives were about to change with the COVID-19 pandemic. In the introduction, I talked of the Inuit people's 50 words for snow, saying that because it mattered so much to them and was such a vital part of their daily lives, it was important for them to develop words and a vocabulary to describe it in a wide range of ways. During lockdown, quiet has come to mean so much to us. Lockdown started on the 23rd of March, and today, as we publish this episode, is the 23rd of June. Three months. Three strange months which have, despite all the fear, the pain and the loss, it nevertheless has given us many precious moments to stop and reflect on just how chaotic, busy and loud our lives and the planet had become. The UK has been 50% quieter during lockdown due to less vibrations caused by traffic, air travel and construction. Maybe, with that quiet being around us more and with a growing appreciation for the calm, well-being benefits that it brings, perhaps when we come to describe how we want the space to sound acoustically, our life in lockdown might have made quiet and calm more of a priority in the future of building design and given us a few more words with which to describe how we want our buildings of the future to make us feel. And Arup is at the very centre of building those future buildings. In the introduction, you heard me briefly describe how Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, architects, consultants and technical specialists working across every aspect of today's built environment. They're headquartered in London, which is where Adrian works, but globally, they have over 15,000 staff and they're working on projects in over 140 countries. You heard how Adrian has worked on a wide range of projects that include railway stations, hospitals, shopping malls, schools, spaces where people gather en masse in huge numbers. So what challenges does the return to the new normal present to a company like Arup, whose buildings lie at the very heart of our everyday lives? I highly recommend you take a visit to arup.com. First, take a look at the huge range of projects they work on, 
One of my personal favourites being the Jewel Changi Airport in Singapore, which, with so many trees and plants on different levels, looks more like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon than an airport. And then check out their COVID-19 page, which reads, Adapting to a COVID-19 world. Acting now. Preparing tomorrow. And then goes on to have the subheading, From Crisis to Recovery. With many commercial assumptions challenged by the pandemic, from sudden loss of consumers, passengers or clients, to underused assets and infrastructure, Arup believes recovery has four strands. And it lists those strands under four headings, rapid adaptation, data, technology and modelling, restarting operations and global vaccine development, in which they talk of the rapid development of safe, high-capacity research and pharmaceutical production facilities being a global priority and how our economic future depends on it. QuietMark is grateful for the work that companies like Arup do to help bring the world back to some kind of new normal. And on a perhaps more close to home level, we're very grateful to Arup for allowing us to spend the time that we have with Adrian, both at our Acoustic Academy launch and in the recording of this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Adrian as much as I did recording the conversation. And I hope you can join us for future episodes of the QuietMark podcast. For now, take care, stay safe, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.